Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. Well, good morning, Trinity Galewood. It's good to be worshiping with you all. Uh, my name is Nick Price. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. Uh, it's my pleasure to be uh, continuing in this Advent conspiracy with you all. I think before we uh, dive into God's word this morning, uh, it's only right that we allow him to uh, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we do indeed give you so much thanks that you have gathered us here together as your people, that we might come to know you, to understand what it means to be a people who are anticipating your arrival and joining you in the kingdom work that you are doing. And so, Lord, as we study your word, we pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as Eric mentioned a little bit earlier, we are in the midst of this series that we are calling the Advent Conspiracy. Uh, This is actually not an idea that Trinity had. This is something that's been going on at churches around the world for at least the past decade. Uh, Several pastors got together and they they were thinking about this season that we find ourselves in, this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the season that the church is traditionally called Advent, and they realized that maybe we've gotten a little bit off base in our preparations for Jesus' return. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to put together a conspiracy among churches where we said, you know, we're going to kind of flip the script on the way the rest of our, the world celebrates this season by thinking about what does it mean to truly anticipate the return of Christ by participating in his kingdom work here and now. And so they came up with these four themes, uh, four themes that churches would have a chance to reflect on together through the Advent season. That's to worship fully to spend less, to give more, and to love all. Worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. They say that's what this whole Advent season should really be about. And honestly, one of the things that I find kind of interesting just about that, though, are the ways in which, uh, honestly, uh, two of those things, for many Christians, we're just like, well, yeah, of course, but, but two of those things kind of, uh, you, you might say you're, you're kind of meddling a little bit, Pastor. I think most of us, when we look at that, we're just like, yeah, Advent season, get ready for Christmas, worship fully, got it, love all, absolutely. But then where we start to kind of get uh, a little bit nervous, a little bit uncomfortable, is what we start talking about this weekend, and what we're going to keep talking about next weekend, spoiler alert, okay? You know, and sorry, Eric, you got to take it for next week. Uh, you're, you're taking it to the, to, the, to the next one. It's these two middle ideas of spending less and giving more. And the reason why I think they make us uncomfortable is because on the surface, intellectually, we understand, yes, that is what this season should be about. It's not supposed to be about us. It is supposed to be about giving more to others. It's not supposed to be about spending on ourselves. It's about, should be about giving away. But then like the realities set in of what that actually means. If I'm going to spend less on myself... At Christmas, it also means we're going to be spending less on presents for other people. 
Because if we're going to give more, we got to have more to give, right? And so then we have to go into those awkward family conversations where people are just like, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And we're like, uh, nothing, and we're also not getting you anything either, right? And this is supposed to, like, you know, conjure up the warm fuzzies at this season of, of fellowship and stuff like that, right? And suddenly, like, now people start to wonder, not like, oh, wow, that's so pious and interesting and so glad you're doing what Jesus would call you to do. It's just kind of, what, you don't love me? Like, that's the way it kind of feels, right? There's so much pressure when we start to say, you know what, we're going to spend a little bit less on presents this year um, so that we can give more away, right? That's, that's what this is all about. And, and I will be honest, like, I, I felt this pressure over the Thanksgiving break. Because uh, my, my brother-in-law and his girlfriend were in town to visit us because they're not going to be with us at Christmas. They're going to be visiting other family, doing other things. And so they actually brought Christmas presents for us all early, and we were not ready for that. And so they came in with these like box load of like presents and stuff like that, and my wife just like grabs my arm and is like, <gasps> and, it was just, and I knew exactly what she was thinking, we didn't get them anything yet. You know, we were hoping we were going to send them something. And, and, and so we just had to do like the awkward thing. We're just like, thank you guys so much. This is Joe Generous. Your, your gifts are coming. We promise. They'll be there by Christmas, right? And then like they leave, they go home. And Sunday afternoon of that week, the day which is supposed to be a Sabbath day of rest became a shopping day of stress. Because we were online looking at Etsy and trying to find like other things. Like, what are we going to get for Paul and Lisa? Like, I'm like the worst in-law, guys. Like this, I'm just like outing myself right now because we're totally stressed out by this whole thing, right? This is what gift giving does at this season, right? It's, it's, we want people to know that they're loved, right? We want to be able to reciprocate and let them know that they're of value to us. And so suddenly when it comes to this idea of actually spending less on ourselves so that we can give more away, man, this, this comes with some real relational baggage, doesn't it? It becomes hard to step into these conversations and to really think about uh, what it's going to take in order for us to be obedient to God and to truly give things away. And and so what I want to do this morning is I want us to think just a little bit about that, Uh, hopefully a little bit sober-mindedly for just a second. And and I want to start by just asking this question. How many of you can remember what you got for Christmas last year? Raise your hand. A couple, like, tentative hands. All right, keep those hands up. People who just like hands up. All right, now how about two years ago? Three? You remember what you got four years ago? Five, right. Yeah, okay. So you see my point. Notice how few people could even remember what they got last year. And the further and further we go back, right, those hands start to come down. We spend all this time freaking out about how we're going to get the perfect gift for somebody because there's all this, like, relational expectation of what you should do at the holidays only to recognize, as we just did, that most of us aren't going to remember what those were. So why do we do it? Well, again, I think it's because of the expectations. We want to do the right thing at Christmas, we want our family and our friends and our coworkers and our loved ones to know that they're valued, right? And because of that expectation, we, we try to do the right thing. But one of the things that I want to argue this morning is that oftentimes we can end up doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And to help us wrap our heads around that, I want to actually go back to the very, very first Christmas story. And that passage that we read from Matthew chapter 1 just a few moments ago. Last week, we kind of looked at the Christmas story from Mary's perspective, didn't we? And we talked about what a risk it was for her to say yes to God. 
She knew that by saying yes when the angel announced this amazing gift so that she was going to be the mother of the Savior, that that, that was going to come with a whole lot of hurt and hardship. She knew she lived in a highly religious, super conservative society. And she knew that to say yes to what God was calling her to meant that she would become an outcast in her society and culture. The reason why is because she had not yet been joined in marriage with her husband. And in those small little villages of Nazareth, word gets around real fast. And she knew what that would mean for her. And and today I want to look at the other person involved in this story, and that's Joseph, her betrothed, her fiancé. One of the things that you need to recognize is that in in ancient Jewish culture, they, they did have this process of betrothal which basically meant that that once you were betrothed to somebody, you were now legally husband and wife. And that time was a time of preparation in which the the husband would be starting to get the household together and get ready to receive his bride uh, into his home. It would be a time for her of preparation. But in the eyes of everybody around them, they are now husband and wife. And all they're waiting for is the celebration. And yet, what do we read in Matthew chapter 1? Verse 18. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now Matthew gives us a little bit of insight uh, that uh, Joseph and the other people in Nazareth might not have had. And that was that what happened with Mary happened as a miracle from God. But, But to everybody else... They all know what this looks like, right? This young woman, who was betrothed to be married to this man, has now hooked up with somebody outside of wedlock and is now a pariah. She's an outsider. She's an outcast. And you can imagine what this probably did to Joseph. He's been looking forward to the day in which he's going to be married to his wife, uh, when they're going to start their family together. And suddenly he gets news that the woman that he's been preparing for, the one that he's been getting ready for, is now pregnant. And he knows it's not his. What's he going to do? Well, again, Matthew kind of helps us understand a little bit of what was in Joseph's head and heart It says that because Joseph was faithful to the law and he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now that one sentence is loaded with a whole bunch of cultural expectations that I don't think we fully understand. When it talks about her being exposed to public disgrace or in some translations public shame, we're not just talking about the fact that people are going to start saying mean things about her on social media. To be publicly disgraced in that time and in that day meant that you would be dragged out into the middle of your town where you would be put on display for everybody who walked by and people would, and and the rest of the town would tell passers-by why you're there. And in the case of a woman who's suspected of adultery, as now Mary would have been legally under the law, what they would have done is actually stripped her half naked and they would have told people to look on her shame because she was an unfaithful woman. And she would have had to stand there all day. And that wasn't even the worst thing that could have happened to her. If Joseph actually was going to go to the full length of the law, what he could have done is he could have accused her publicly. Not just divorced her, but accused her of adultery. And in that case, according to the law, she could have been put to death. 
horrible prospects for Mary. And Joseph, we read, is a righteous man, a man who's faithful to the law. But I love, again, it's so hard to capture kind of in our English translations. It says that while he was a righteous man, there's almost this emphatic negative in the Greek in which it says he didn't want to do anything to expose her to public disgrace. He did not want Mary to go through that. So what we learn is Joseph is on the one hand a man who wants to do the right thing according to the law, but also a man of deep and intense compassion. And so what he resolves to do is what he thought was the best thing you could do. Given the circumstances, he says, I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm not going to let anybody know. It's just going to be between her and, her and her family and me. And I'm going to go about my life and let her go about hers. You can see how Joseph thought that this was the best thing that he could do. Why? Because of all the expectations, right? He was going to try to do the right thing. But the reality was, is he was going to end up doing it for all the wrong reasons. Why? Because he didn't know what Mary knew. That no wrongdoing was done. And so the question is, how is it that this man, faced with this horrible decision, ends up becoming somebody that we recognize every time we put together a manger scene? What was it that took him from wanting to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons to ultimately saying yes to God, what God was doing, even though he knew what the consequences would be. You see, he knew that if, if, if he were to believe Mary's story and take her as his wife, not only would she be an outcast, but so would he. His reputation as a righteous, law-abiding guy would be tarnished. People would be like, he's making excuses for her sin. Maybe he actually is the dad. How did he say Yes what I love about the rest of the Christmas story. It says, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because of what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What enabled Joseph to say yes is because he suddenly was swept up in a much bigger story. A much bigger story in which God said, Joseph, I'm about to do something that you and all your people have always been longing for. The salvation that you've hungered for the kingdom which you've been praying for, the coming savior that you've heard spoken of by prophets, the salvation that you've sung about in your psalms. I'm bringing that one into the world through Mary, and she needs your help. She needs you to protect her. She needs you to help raise this child. And the moment Joseph understands that, there's no question. He goes and he takes her as his wife. I just love how it says this. It says, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. He didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus, the exact name that the angel told him to give him. 
And what I love about this is that there literally is no question. I don't know if you realize this. We don't have a single line from Joseph anywhere in the Bible. Not once a recorded word from his lips. Why? Because the moment that he realizes that this is a calling from God on his life, there's nothing more to say. He goes and in eagerness claims her as his wife, takes the child as his son, and spends the rest of his days as far as we know doing everything in his power to watch over and to protect them. Why? Because he was swept up in a totally different kind of story. He didn't have to consider what it cost him. He didn't have to consider what it would look like to other people. He didn't have to consider what people would, might say about him or about this woman. Why? Because he understood that he was part of something so much larger, so much more beautiful, so much more incredible than anything he could have settled on on his own. He was willing to give up everything, his home, his reputation, his, his comfort. I mean, when you look at his story, he, this means saying yes to not only becoming an outcast, later on they become refugees on the run from a homicidal king. When they eventually come back, they can't go home anymore. And all of this, Joseph says, doesn't matter because he's a part of a better story, a much better story. The story of God coming into the world to bring the salvation that people long for. And next to that, every other concern pales in comparison. You know, when we look at those four aspects of the Advent conspiracy, worshiping fully, spending less, giving more, love all, I think it's funny that we think spend less and give more of the hardest of those two. Because I think that maybe we've missed what Joseph came to see. That when we're a part of a bigger story, all this stuff just comes naturally, doesn't it? When we realize that we've been saved by God's grace, and welcomed into the kingdom work that he's doing, every other expectation just seems small. By embracing the Advent conspiracy, we have an opportunity to say we are a part of a different story. That when people ask, why are you doing that craziness of spending less and giving more? It's because we say we want to bring hope and peace and joy and love. Because we know the one by whose name we're called. His name is Jesus. And he came to bring the, to bring the very best gift that we could ever receive. Salvation. He is our God with us. And so, we want to say yes to the work that he's doing. This season, we are going to have to make some tough decisions and maybe have some uncomfortable conversations. But rather than seeing those as hard conversations, I think I would love it if we could see those opportunities the way Joseph saw his. as a chance to tell people about the greatest story ever told and to invite them into the work of bringing transformation into other people's lives that they too might know the hope that we have. That's our invitation from Collective Chicago this year. This ministry which is saying we're going to approach homelessness in a totally different way through dignified relationships, transformative community, fresh starts, and new beginnings.
And to help us understand just what a difference that makes, I want you to hear from a couple of the residents who've gone through this ministry and what a difference it's made in their lives and to see this as your invitation to be a part of a different kind of story. Let's listen to this. Uh, hello, my name is Christopher Lee, um, 18. I'm George Oliva. I'm from the west side of Chicago, the west side of Humble Park. I originally grew up in Austin and East Garfield neighborhood. I grew, my mom was from a third world country. My dad was, you know, dead when I was young. We've been like getting kicked out of places. We lived in hotels, almost shelters, you know. We've been living like off social security and stuff like that, so it's been hard for us. And then trying to maintain, it was days, weeks, we went without eating. I ended up coming to the United States when I was like nine. I was kicked out on the street at 15. We always had to like go fend for ourselves. Even though we was a family, everybody tried to fend for themselves. Like the last three years, I was really going through hell. And uh, um, I was, I was uh, like suffering through depression and then um, I didn't have nowhere to live. Not even money, just like to have food in my stomach and uh, have a, like, a place to stay at night and just, you know, sleeping on the train. My freshman year, I got into a little bit of trouble, you know, stuff like that. My dad died, I was under 15, and 13 days after my dad died, I got shot four times. Like, trying to recover, arm was broke, you know, stomach cut open. I had, a, like, three surgeries. Um, I got connected with this uh, organization called Trilogy. Um, they helped me, but the shelter that I was living in was closing, so they found me the collective. After after all that, I tried to get in more programs, trying to find more jobs. My mentor, she um, <laughs> she been trying to get me in like stuff like these, and then once once the uh, opening came up for the collective, she been looking to a lot of stuff. She jumped on it. She called me while I was at work <laughs> and told me to do the application, so I went in the bathroom during work <laughs> and I did <laughs> I did the application. And I went through the uh, interview process, which is great. You know, meeting Adam for the first time was great. I remember I got there and I was like, wait, this doesn't look like a shelter. So I took a picture with my phone and said to uh, a friend, I'm like, yo, this is where I am. If I don't leave in 30 minutes, um, come look for me. <laughs> so I would say the collective is like a, I wouldn't say a housing. I'd say like, I'd say like I wouldn't say temporary housing. I say like people that's taking you in as they own, like a family as of right now. Even though you might not be in there for so long, you feel like you'll feel like you're a part of something or you feel like you're family. I went in, had dinner with the guys. It was refreshing, it was new, it wasn't a shelter, it was kinda like a home. No, I felt comfortable the first day, you know. Um, even though sometimes I would hide a, a golf club, you know, the pillow, you know, just because, you, you know, you never know, you never know, you know, and they did find it. <laughs> you know, like doing group albums, I wasn't doing group albums with my family, like, so, and it being experienced to new things like food, all these different type of food, all these different new places and people, if I don't care for them, I feel like my day not complete. Like, if I don't ask them what's wrong, even I can be hurt myself, but I still check on them. One thing I want to say is that, like, they seen the good person that I was. They seen the best that I was when a lot of people wasn't able to see, you know, the good in me, you know? I like, you know, just being brought into like a family that I never really had, 
you know, just being out on the streets so long that you forget how to trust people. You forget that there are good people out there that don't want anything in return. They just want to be good and see people succeed. And that was, uh, that was that's what I appreciated most. An opportunity to be a part of a new beginning, to welcome people into a new family, to ultimately introduce them to the God who made them, who loves them, who's called them his own. What could be a more fitting way to celebrate Advent, right? And so as we think about spending less and giving more, my prayer is that we would see ourselves as a part of that story. It's toward that end, I'd invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks for the work of Collective Chicago and this beautiful thing that they're doing of stepping into people's lives in a new way. This isn't just about providing temporary housing. This is about welcoming people into a new kind of community, a new home, a new family a place where they can experience your love and your grace. And so, Lord, we pray for us and our hearts, our hearts which hold on to our stuff, who get more stressed out about spending less and giving more than we do about loving all and worshiping fully. Lord, help us to be people who see ourselves as a part of a bigger story, your story, the story of the God who came into this world to be one of us, to make us his own, to forgive us, and to then invite us into the work that you're doing. Lord, we pray that you would help us in the face of all other expectations to say yes to that calling. It's in your name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.